Hi everyone and welcome to the Private Practice with Soul podcast. This is the first podcast for counsellors that just don't align with the traditional approaches to business and that want to use their spiritual gifts, talents and interests to create, you guessed it, a private practice with soul. So look, leave it to me to provide you with everything you need, including strategies that you can use to increase your income, reduce your workload and of course increase inquiries and referrals to your beautiful soul-led private practice. I love it so much. If you haven't done it already, grab your journal, grab your pen and let's begin. Lovely therapist, welcome to another episode. Yeah, I'm super happy because I think I've got a really great topic to share with you today and I'm very pleased with myself because I've managed to uh, relate it to our world of private practice. (laughs) So uh, you're going to come with me now on a trip down memory lane about a... um, an event that happened to me in 2015. So let me just share with you a quick backstory just to set the context for you. And um, this could be a little bit of a longer podcast. I'm not sure. I'm going to try and look at some photos while I'm talking to you to try and jog my memory for inspiration. But anywho, so I don't know why, but oh, that's right. It was in 2015, the... Yeah, the start of 2015, I was sitting at home and you know me, like I'm not great socially and I I thought to myself, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to do something about this. And I joined an app called Meetup. Now, it's not a dating site, don't panic. Um, It's a networking site. So you enter, if you don't know what it is, um, just basically you enter your postcode and you enter some interests and you know, then it brings up a list of all the events that are in your area. And some of them are free. Actually, many of them are free or gold coin donations. Some of them are paid, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I did one Saturday afternoon. And uh, anyway, one of the options there that you could choose from in the activities section uh, for your, your interest was hiking. And I thought, oh, well, hiking's just walking. I reckon I could do that. And, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, well, if I hike, maybe I'm not going to have to talk to anybody, but I can still kind of be around people. And maybe that will be a really great step, excuse the pun, um, to take. So I clicked on the hiking and then I was really surprised to see that there were a bunch of hiking meetups around my area in, you know, the Mornington Peninsula. And I was super excited. So I joined a bunch of them and I went along to one and I just know I had no idea what I was doing. Right. I just thought that I was going to be walking. And, you know, so I went out and I got some active wear because, <laughs> of course, you need new gym clothes to go for a walk. Right. So I got gym clothes and I had <laughs> I had my um Oh, what do you call them? Not leggings, but you know, the, the tights and I had a t-shirt and I had a raincoat because it was raining. And anyway, I got there and uh, anyway, this guy comes up to me and he's like, hi, I'm, I'm John. You must be Brooke. He came over to the car, scared me, you know, came over to the car and introduced himself. He's the loveliest, loveliest guy. And he just did his best to make me feel so welcome. And he was the leader of the walking group. And it was, yeah, my first time. And it was also another lady's first time. Her name was Rachel and we just clicked. We just hit it off. And so anyway, 
we're walking around and we were just walking around the Briars, which is, you know, a beautiful sort of park. Um, there's now like a little farm there, etc., etc. And we walked through the Briars and then we walked along Safety Beach and then up to Mornington and then we had a bite to eat and a coffee in Main Street. And it was just, it was really nice. And what I really liked about it was um, it worked for me because of the social aspect, right? I didn't have to talk to anyone. Um, Rachel and I walked side by side. We had a little bit of small talk. I just felt like okay with her. But other than that, it was the perfect activity for me to do, right? So I got hooked and uh, I started going to these hiking events regularly and they would start off like I think the first one I did was I don't know 7k and I thought to myself oh 7k that's so big um and I felt like it was such a huge achievement but by the end of it I was doing like 27k and stuff like that and I was like wow this is a big achievement and I remember when I first started one of the very first hikes that um, John took us on because you have you get in your car and you drive out to the meeting point you know like might be at Cape Shank or so, so Cape Shank is a lighthouse down here on the peninsula so you might meet at Cape Shank and then go for a big walk along the beach and da da da, da and come back so you kind of do a loop um, and the loops are usually different lengths um, and different terrain and all this but on this particular day we had to meet at the bottom of Arthur's Seat which is like quite steep. It's a um, hill. And anyway, there are all these steps. And I cried walking up the steps because I was in so much pain and I was just, I knew I couldn't do it. And eventually I did get to the top, but I was last to the top. I complained all the way up. Um, I was out of breath. Everybody else had gone way ahead of me. And when I finally caught up to them, they'd nearly finished their lunch, right? It was embarrassing. It was like, <laughs> all the things I was frustrated, I was mad, I was angry, da, 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 da. But anyway, I kept going. I don't know why, but I kept going. And um, anyway, it just became my thing. So it was like every Saturday or every Sunday, sometimes both Saturdays and Sundays, I was going off on these 30-kilometer walks and just loving it, right, just loving it. And there were different people on the walks all the time. But anyway, um, one day... I joined a different group. I can't remember who it was. I want to say it wasn't the Scouts group or anything like that, but there was there was some kind of, you know, charity group that were having a, oh, it might have been the YMCA or something. But anyway, they were having a walk, they were having a hike. And so uh, I went along to that and it was in the Dandenongs. So the Dandenongs in Victoria are really, really hilly. And I... I'm short, I'm stocky, and I have trouble climbing up things <laughs> because I tire really easily and it's painful and all the things, right? And so anyway, I'm climbing up the, the hill and I'm huffing and puffing and I'm on the brink of tears again and I'm just like, why did I put myself through this? And then there was this um, chap there and his name was Darren. I want to say Darren. And um, he said to me, oh, you know what, you can use this stick. And he went off into the woods and he came back with this, you know, big stick and he showed me how to use this stick um, to change my posture, to go from like almost doubled over trying to crawl my way up the, the face of the hill um, to being almost upright. And 
it made it so much easier. And then do you know what? My confidence was like, oh, this is how you do it. So I learned this new thing. And so then I was like head of the pack and loving it, right? And I'm like, yeah, you hill, I'm going to lead the way. And off I went. And anyway, this was, it all happened on one weekend. And I must have led the way with other people, of course. I was in the front little pack um, up, I don't know, countless hills and mountains. And I just felt invincible, right, at the end of this weekend. And at the time, I was working at the medical center uh, as a psychologist and I got into work early. I was getting ready for my first appointment and I was just drinking my coffee and I was going through my email. And at the time I was subscribed to, I can't remember if it was Groupon or Scoopon, but you know, one of those things. And there was this um, advertisement that came across it said you know come and trek Everest it's a thousand dollars and that includes your flights and this and that and I couldn't believe it right and so I booked it because I figured like hey I know how to climb a hill of course I'm gonna go and trek Everest <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking I don't know what I was thinking anyway so I book it and then the next weekend a new lady comes to one of the hiking groups and she and I just hit it off and her name was Karen. And anyway, I, I loved her because she was random like I was and I said to her, oh, yeah, I've just booked this trip to go and trek Everest. You should come. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah. And then I said to her, I'll send you my details. So I sent her a copy of the Groupon or Scoopon thing. I sent her a copy of like my flight details and everything. And while we were having lunch that day, Karen booked herself to come and <laughs> trek Everest with me. And we contacted the people in the, it was called um, oh, something, the Himalayas hike the Himalayas or trek the Himalayas or something and um, we contacted them and we got Karen on the same flight over as me and we even got on adjacent seats so it was like destiny meant to be and then from that point on Karen and I were inseparable and we met for every single walk we met for walks in between just because we were getting along, not for any training or anything like that. And then <laughs> it comes closer and closer to the trip, which was towards the end of the year. And um, people started asking us, you know, have you done any training for it? We're like, no, like, it's just walking. Why do you have to train for it? We didn't understand this. And other people in the hiking group were like, oh, you know, I'm training for it. And they were carrying all this extra weight on their um, backs in their backpacks and I was like why are you doing that and they said oh you know to get used to the altitude and this that and the other and then there were other people who were going off to the chambers you know to sort of get their bodies used to the pressure and the altitude and all of this sort of stuff and we weren't doing anything like that we were just literally showing up to these hikes uh, these local hikes along the beach <laughs> anywho we the time comes and we go over right we are so excited so it was about the same time that the movie Everest came out it was the same time that the movie Everest came out and um, I mean I was so unaware that there'd even been an earthquake prior but there had been of course um, in in Everest and so they were trying to um, boost up the tourism which was why we had this special offer that we were able to to use so anyway uh, 
we didn't do any research. Basically, we just treated it like it was going to be a regular hike. So, I mean, looking back, I can't believe I did it, but I can because, you know, when it comes to life stuff, sometimes I just, I don't think, um, but... <laughs> When it comes to business stuff, I'm all over it. But when it comes to life stuff, it's like I'm missing a gene or something. I'm like, I just don't get, I just don't get it. Like things just don't occur to me. So no, I never did any research. Um, and this is going to sound really, uh, you know, embarrassing as well. I didn't even think that it was going to be snowing there. And so what I did know was that we had a limit on how much we could take over and we were only allowed to take over, I think it was 15 or 20 kilos. And that was really hard because you've got, you know, your your boots, which weigh a ton. You've got a bladder in your, it's called a bladder. It's like that bag that holds the water in your backpack. And, you know, the tube comes out of that and you put that tube in your mouth. And so you, you suck on that and that, that holds two liters, right? So, Everything starts adding up pretty quickly and we got us we got our weights down and everything. We had everything we needed in our backpack. We even had like um, packets and packets of baby wipes because somebody told us like there weren't any toilets or the toilets were really horrible or something and there was no toilet paper. So um, we took big packets of um, baby wipes, which of course they weigh a ton especially when you're trying to limit the, the amount of weight that you've got. And we took T-shirts. Um, <laughs> I don't know why we took T-shirts, but we took T-shirts. We took um, going out clothes so that we could go out, all of this sort of jazz. Anyway, we go over. It's a really long flight and we arrive in Kathmandu which sounds very exotic, doesn't it? And we're so excited. And so we go to Kathmandu, uh, the People from the um, Trek the Himalaya company meet us there and they say, right, you're coming with us and we're going to go up to your apartment now. So you stay in Kathmandu for one or two nights. Um, so they got us a, a room and anyway, they said, can you come down and meet us in half an hour? Um, we're going to be in this area of the hotel. So the hotel wasn't fantastic, right? It's like a developing country. So it was trying to be fantastic, but you know, I loved it because of its flaws. But anyway, so we go down into the um area where these people are and they <laughs> they tell us, right, uh welcome, you know, this is the plan. Um you're gonna have one or two nights here, you know, just kind of get used to everything. Um, and yet yeah, here are some duffel bags, one each. Uh we need you to only bring 10 kilos of stuff. And that was like about half of what we had already culled from our luggage. And I'm just thinking, what are we going to leave behind? So we had to go back up to the room and try and, you know, look at well, what's really essential. What do we need? What don't we need? And stuff like that. And it was horrible. And anyway, it felt like we had nothing, nothing. Anyway, so... After we did all of that, we decided that we we're going to go out and explore Kathmandu. Oh, no, we had to go and get sleeping bags, right? So in Kathmandu, it was like a big open-air market, um, but they also had some city blocks with stores and stuff like that. And there was this one place that we had to go to to get our sleeping bags or tents or I forget what it was. I'm pretty sure it was sleeping bags. Yeah, it was sleeping bags. And um, we go in there, we had to go upstairs and oh my gosh, it was like a hall that just had sleeping bags 
everywhere. They were unzipped, unopened, and they were all used. And I was like, I looked at Karen. I was like, WTF, like, I'm not sleeping in one of those. And they had to measure us up and size us up. And some of them were just, you could, the zips didn't do up. Others were really lumpy and, you know, had no wadding or padding, you know, in some areas and lots in others. And uh, it took us hours to try and find a sleeping bag that we could use. It was so, oh my gosh, it was eye-opening, right? I was like, oh my gosh, what have we got ourselves into? And then after we did that, um, the company took the sleeping bags and, you know, from us and then said we had the night to ourselves. So we just went exploring really and we found this really lovely falafel place and there wasn't anywhere to sit down and eat the falafels. So we had to sit down on the street and eat them. We sat down on the footpath because we were so tired. We couldn't stand up and there was nowhere to sit. And so we were just sitting there on the side of the road eating our falafels. But it tasted like it was the best food ever. And so we had two. <laughs> it was so good. And then we went back and we had a sleep and everything and Next day or the day after, we had to get up really, really early, meet everybody else down in the lobby, get our bags weighed and all of this. And then we got um, bussed out to a little airport. And at the airport, there was this tiny, whiny, whiny little plane. And it was so cute because, again, I hadn't done any research, but it was so cute because the little plane... I think maybe it sat about eight people. It was so tiny and cute. But uh, the lady, the um, hostess, the the steward, she opened up the um, steps, right? So they fall down. There's like only two steps. It was so little. But she's standing there and she's got a silver tray, right? And on the silver tray... I don't know what I was expecting, right? Maybe I was expecting hot towels or something. But what was on the silver tray was a lot of cotton wool, a lot of cotton wool. And I thought, why is there all this cotton wool there? So there was cotton wool. um, Apparently that's for your ears because it's going to get really noisy on this plane. So you take some of the cotton wool and then she had a little like Mentos mints. And you take one of those because it's likely you're going to get nauseous uh, because of the way this plane flies because the plane is so old. (laughs) I was like, what? And then anyway, we all got on the plane and we all had a window seat, of course, because it was so small. And then some of the guys... um, that had come on the plane, they were talking about um, how they wanted to get footage of this um, flight. And I was like, why do you want to get footage? And they said, because this is like one of the world's most dangerous flights. <laughs> I was like, what? And apparently there's footage online, which I still haven't looked at. There's footage online of like how this flight from Kathmandu in Nepal to Lakla is like so scary. And the reason why is because it flies through the Himalayas um, and the runway to land in the Himalayas um, is so short that there have been instances and occasions where the plane is just coming too fast. How's that? And anyway, so people were really wanting to record it. Now, I was sitting behind the pilot, um, behind the pilot or the co-pilot. I was up that that far in the front and (laughs) this is no word of a lie this is no word of a lie and if you have trekked Everest you might remember this um, because I'm sure I wasn't the only flight this happened on but there was condensation 
inside the plane and the pilot he had like a little windscreen wiper a windscreen wiper on the the plane and uh he also had tissues and he was just like wiping down the windscreen with tissues while we're flying and his chair was just like (laughs) one of those one of those like orange school chairs you know those really horrible ones that you've got to sit on when you're in high school and it was just like bolted to the plane somehow and everything was shaking and um shivering and rumbling and it was very loud um it was not scary for me because I have masculine energy dominant, right? So I'm kind of loving the excitement. And I'm thinking, do you know what? If I die by crashing into the side of the Himalayas, that's awesome. Like what a way to go out for, for you know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, that's so much better than, you know, passing away from, from something boring in Frankston, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I was like, full of adrenaline, loving it. And anyway, when we made the landing, everybody clapped, including people at the Lakla runway. <laughs> it was so good. And then when we when we got off, like there were there were people and they were like monks and all that and they were, they were praying for us and I mean it was just so cool. And anyway so we arrive there and we have to stay in this little sort of waiting area. And in this waiting area the people who own it came and gave us thermoses. Now, these thermoses look like they were relics from the 50s. They were um, painted like in gingham, like, you know, pink gingham or pale blue gingham or even tartan. They were heavily dented and scratched. I mean, these were well-worn thermoses and they're probably about two litres each. And, you know, we were invited to just drink. It was uh, ginger tea. And so I loved it. So I had ginger tea and then it became my thing, right? So I wanted to have ginger tea all the time. And the way that they made it was they actually sliced real ginger and put it in the hot water with the tea and everything. It was so delicious. I drank my two liters and then I was asking for more, right? Because I was just now loving the whole vibe of, oh, this could be awesome. Everest is great. Anywho, um, we start walking onto the first village and it is so hot. I'm stripping off, right? I'm taking off my jacket and everything. I'm just there in a little tank top or t-shirt. I've got my hair in pigtails. I've got my backpack on. I've got my little sneakers on and my leggings, whatever. And we're just walking. And we've got my little cap on, my sunnies. It's beautiful weather. It was just stunning weather and there were flowers in the fields. It's very agricultural. So you can see like farm animals and chickens and all of this. And the people there um, are just beautiful people and smiling and welcoming us as we're walking to our first um, stop off for, for the day. And anyway, we arrived there and just had a lovely time and then I can't remember if it was maybe a day or two later we start walking and um, we started to notice there was snow. I was like, oh, this is so exciting because there's not that many times in my life I've actually seen snow. So, again, I'm super excited. I'm like, oh, this is great. Hello, I'm still wearing my T-shirt, right? So I'm thinking the snow is going to pass. I had no idea that the snow was just the beginning and it was going to get worse. <laughs> I thought the snow was going to pass. So you know, anyway, I didn't even take a proper raincoat. What I had was a soft shell 
jacket, right? So a soft shell jacket sits inside. It's like the lining of a heavy jacket that you might put on. So, you know, a dryzer bone. Imagine if you had like a thin raincoat underneath your dryzer bone, right? The dryzer bone is doing all the heavy lifting in terms of keeping you dry. Um, but maybe the, the little one underneath is more breathable and it's water resistant, not waterproof. So I had water resistant, not waterproof. You know where this is going. Anyway, snow is getting worse and worse and worse. I'm getting wetter and wetter and wetter. And so is Karen. And we are sodden by the time we get up to the next stop off. And the stop offs are interesting in the beginning because, you know, you're curious and you want to see what everything's like. But to give you an idea, a lot of the time they're made of plywood, like walls, ceiling, floor, everything made of plywood. And um, anyway, a lot of the time they uh, they do all the cooking there and you sleep there. The toilets are horrible. Um, it's just like a standard toilet, but they throw a lot of toilet blocks like urinal cakes in it and it stinks to high heaven from that. And, you know, there's water all over the floor, like everywhere in – on this trek it's wet there's there's nothing dry um the floor of the toilets is wet the floor of the bedrooms is wet the place that we were staying in it had beds sort of side by side and they were all on um plywood frames and um there was water dripping down on us while we were sleeping it was like chinese water torture <laughs> it was horrible <laughs> but it was also like exciting so anyway and when we're when we were at the first or second pit stop, you know the food was really great. We would get, um, you know, it was called a Nepal set or a Nepalese set, and it had like I don't know mixed variety of things, and you know it was bottomless. Like you could keep having refills, and it had meat and um, stuff like that. So it was really it was lovely stews, everything. It was um, vegetables, all different color vegetables. It was great. But the thing is, the further up you go because base camp when you're trekking to base camp base camp is not at the bottom of Everest (laughs) it's really high up but this is the thing the further up you go the less stuff grows and so what I noticed and what contributed to my bad mood was the further up I was going, the less, the more bland the food was becoming. And by the time we were at the very top, um, all the food was white. All the food was white. So we had a, a Sherpa and his name was Deepak and he was amazing. He was like, I don't know, maybe in his mid-20s and we were in our early 40s and uh Deepak said to us, Deepak and Kuma, so Kuma was Deepak's boss, but they both said to us, we're going to get you up to the top and back again without medication. Like we do not want you taking altitude sickness tablets. We don't want you doing anything. We're going to get you there and back, but you need to trust us and you need to follow our instructions. And are you willing to do that? If you don't, these things can happen. If you don't, you could get chop it off the mountain if you don't you could die if you don't you could get really sick and you know we're gonna have to run you down the mountain all this sort of stuff 
So we said, yes, of course, we're going to trust our Sherpas, right? Of course, they've been up and down this mountain more times than I've probably had hot dinners. So of course, I'm going to trust them. Now, there were other people when you stay in the, um, well, they're not villages, they're kind of, and they, you wouldn't really call them a hotel or a resort. But when you stay at these kind of pit stops, um, your little group, so Karen and I were our whole group. We had Karen and I and Deepak. But then Kuma, the, the boss, he also had other groups, okay, with other leaders. And so we would all be there roughly at the same time. And where was I going with this? Oh, and people in those other groups, they wanted to, like they'd already got the medicine from their doctor on the way Um here they had altitude tablets they were taking them every day every night they were taking all this medication so that their bodies could adjust and acclimate to the climate right and to the altitude but Deepak and Kuma said to us don't do it we you know let's just follow our instructions so that's what we did and the instructions were that every day we had to have at least two liters of ginger tea which Hello, like I love the ginger tea that I was drinking at that time. So easy, I can do that. And the other thing that we had to do was we had to have garlic soup. Now it might have been garlic and something, but it was garlic. I'm pretty sure it was just garlic soup. And I was like, I hate garlic. Ugh, I don't want to, I don't want to have it. And he said, well, you've got to, if you're going to trek this mountain with us. I was like, okay, then I'll drink the garlic soup. So when I first had the garlic soup, it was totally fine. And you know what? I I actually enjoyed it because I had a little bit of bread and da, 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 da. But you have to have the uh, two liters of ginger tea and a bowl of garlic soup every meal, every meal, right? And in the beginning, this was this was fun and I was enjoying it. But by the time you get further and further up the mountain, as you go further and further up the mountain and things stop growing and things are harder to get um, and there aren't – there's no shops on the mountain, right? There's no shops. There's not a super – there's not even a road. Like there's nothing on this mountain. The way things get up to the pit stops is by people bringing them up on the top of yaks um, and that doesn't happen all the time because of the altitude. So anyway, you're limited in terms of what you can eat. And so by the end of it, like when we got to – base camp the ginger soup was McCormick's powdered ginger in some tepid water I couldn't drink it I thought I thought I was just gonna like no I, I just couldn't look at it and then the garlic soup had gone from being this delicious more sort of broth that had some vegetables in it and you could have your bread and da 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 da, da. now the garlic soup was McCormick's garlic powder in a bowl of hot water and Deepak and Kuma were like, you got to have it. I'm like, I can't, I can't. And I was there one night at dinner and I was just crying. I was like, I just can't do this. I just can't do it. I can't look at it anymore because, you know what, it took us 40, or 12 days to get to um, base camp and it was just like eating that same stuff 36 times in a row, you know. You, you do want to just like – cry it's horrible <laughs> it's horrible and yeah anyway and then the other thing is that 
the pe- the people are lovely, but the conditions are, are bad. Everything, as I said, everything's wet. It stinks. You're eating the same food day in day out. The food is white. Every time you're outside, it's white. You only see white. You look behind you, it's white. You look to the left and the right, it's white. You look ahead of you, it's white. It's depressing. Like it, it's a lack of of anything. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm I'm here in this beautiful space and. I'm not appreciating it. I just I just want to go home and this is horrible and why am I here? And you have those moments um, because of the monotony of it and because it's all white and you're just trudging, 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 trudging. It feels like you're never getting anywhere. It feels like you're not making any progress with anything and it's like this constant, it's one foot in front of the other um, but you don't feel like you're getting any closer to your destination. Does that make sense? And anyway, the only thing that's not white is the sky, but a lot of the time it is because of the clouds. There's no actual snow really coming down. It's more like wind. (laughs) It's got a real bite to it. (laughs) And that makes you want to cry. (laughs) And the wind is kind of powdery. Like you, you, we heard an avalanche, right? We, Kumar and Deepak were like, hey, careful, you know, there's going to be an avalanche. We're like, what do you mean there's going to be an avalanche? They are so in tuned with their surroundings that they can anticipate things that city folk just don't. And they're like, there's going to be an avalanche, you know, look to your right, da 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 da. Sure enough, we look to the right, and the whole side of a mountain comes crashing down. It sounded like thunder it sounded like a really big wave it was in the distance so it didn't affect us but um it was so 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 loud like if you believe in jack and the beanstalk and you think that there's like the giants walking around up up in the clouds imagine that is what it sounded like it was scary loud and um exciting and thrilling and and all of that at the same time and and two the other thing as well i just want to take take you back a step when we were at the beginning of the um you know trek up to base camp for the 12 days one of the things that Deepak and Kumar told us was um we have to follow them and that they're gonna set the pace and don't worry about other people now there were other people from other hiking groups or other trekking groups that were with other trekking companies that we met that told us how they'd been training and they'd been off at the chambers and and are they the hyperbaric chambers? I don't know, but they've been doing all of that. And, you know, one of them owned a gym and all of this sort of stuff. And um, what happened was when we started walking, Karen and I are very competitive. And so we want to walk quickly. We want to be first. We want to be the leaders. But Deepak was walking so slowly it was frustrating and we were saying to him you know come on pick up the pace we want to we, we want to get there like we can do it I know that you know I thought he was thinking because we're we're women or something we weren't gonna be able to do it or because we we're a bit older we weren't good and he was like no I'm setting the pace you have to follow my pace match my pace and people were passing us which was very frustrating for us uh and they were saying see you at the top and all this sort of you know just um <laughs> friendly banter and anyway and they were running and their their sherpas were calling them back and saying don't run ahead don't run ahead and 
when the Sherpas caught up to our group, you know, our Sherpa and Deepak were talking and, you know, the the other group's Sherpa was just like shaking his head and he's just in disbelief. He's saying, what can I do? Well, two days later, uh, the men in those groups got helicoptered off. So I didn't even know that this was a thing. But um, when you get to a certain point, the helicopters stop flying. They stop rescuing you. So you've only got access to uh, air support for a certain way up the mountain and yeah a whole bunch of these guys we were just there we we're walking along and then we heard the helicopter and we saw it come in and it's red it's like a deep red helicopter it came in and yeah it had to airlift people off the mountain because they were rushing they were going so quickly they were running thinking that they could do it because they were very fit but they weren't listening to the advice of their Sherpa about, hey, nobody's questioning your level of fitness here. Uh, you have to go slowly to allow your body time to get used to the air pressure, time to get used to the altitude. You have to give your lungs time to get used to the air getting thinner and thinner. So that's why you have to go slowly. But some people, they just couldn't handle that. So anyway, they didn't, they never completed the the trek they were off and then as we went further and further up there were other people and sherpas were running people down the mountains you have to go up the mountain very quickly uh very slowly sorry um so that you can get used to it used to it used to it um and people who were rushing ahead weren't giving their bodies time to get used to it and they were fainting or passing out bleeding from their nose bleeding from their ears body parts were shutting down and so teams of Sherpas had to literally race these trekkers down the mountain I mean the trekker didn't even have their feet on the ground they were just getting raced down the mountain so quickly Um, it was scary to see uh, and it happened a lot people getting run down the mountain there were lots of red helicopters flying around getting people Um, but at the same time when you hit that part of the trek where you're told this is it now, there's no turning back, it, that wasn't really scary. It felt like an achievement. It felt like, okay, I've made it this far. I know I'm going to make it now. So I don't know. I just want to share with you that that was an experience as well. And as much as we wanted to do things, we had to really trust in our Sherpas. And I really, I don't know that we would have had the experience that we had, had we not trusted our Sherpas. We were, we were lucky to have such experienced guides. Um, and we were, we did the right thing following their instructions for sure. Anyway, um, as we're trekking along, uh, People are having all kinds of experiences. So the red helicopters are behind us now. There's no turning back. We are up so high and we are at the stage of the trek where we've gone from walking 12K a day up the mountain to now we're walking maybe two. It's still taking us eight or nine hours, but we are now walking as if we are on the moon. We have to walk that slowly um, because our, our bodies just can't handle anything more quick. So the further up you go, the slower you go and the less ground you cover. 
Like I think the last day it was maybe about 1K and that took us about eight hours to walk that 1K. Um, But anyway, people started to have these experiences. One guy that I was walking with, I won't say his name, but one guy that I was walking with, he wasn't in our group, but his group and and Karen and I were walking at the same pace and our guides knew each other. So we just all kind of made one bigger group, but he was a, a traveler and a travel photographer and stuff. And he just had a bit of a breakdown and he was just sort of sitting there and everybody had continued on walking really slowly, but I noticed that he was sitting there and he was just crying. And so I just sat beside him like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what's going on for him, but I just sat beside him and I just let him cry. And we sat there together for, it felt like the longest time, like the people, our group was almost out of our sight. I could see our Sherpa um, waiting for us and I could see the direction that we needed to go in. And I had to say to him, come on, we've got to get up and, and go. And we walked together side by side, slowly, slowly. And he was crying and crying and crying. And he was saying, you know, all the things he didn't think it was going to be like this. And it's so hard. And why? And, <laughs> you know, all the all the stuff came up for him. Anyway, we catch up to the group. And later on that day, one of the girls starts crying and she didn't even know that this guy had been crying. She starts crying and all her stuff is coming up and she's like thinking about her past relationships and she's thinking about her job and she's thinking about her her mom and all this. And so all this stuff's coming up for her. And then people are sort of huddled around her and giving her comfort and trying to give her support and stuff like that. And then it was like for the next couple of days everyone was having these meltdowns everyone was having the I wouldn't necessarily call them breakthroughs because I don't know that there were any but definitely people were reflecting all the all all the yuck stuff was coming to the surface all their fears was coming to the surface and they were getting scared that what happens if we die on the mountain now it's a trek let's get it in perspective it's a trek and I believe we were safe every step of the way, but at the same time, it's high risk. Like, you know, it's really hard to get travel insurance for, for going on Everest. <laughs> it costs a lot of money because it's so risky. It doesn't matter how how good your Sherpas are or how, you know, in, inclined you are to follow their directions. It's still high risk. Like your Sherpa can't guarantee that you're not going to die. Um And there are so many stories that the Sherpas will tell you about people dying on the trek. So that probably doesn't help. But, uh, you know, it's not campfire gossip because we never had a campfire. It's snow and wet all the time. But certainly um, when we're sitting down having our meals, Sherpas took great delight in talking to us about, you know, some of the risks and seeing our reactions and things like that. And then there were more somber moments where they were recounting times of people who, yeah, had passed away um, on this trek. So it was bringing up a lot of stuff for people, I guess, thinking about how they lived their lives and, you know, what, what, what the meaning of their life was. And so it got really big. Anyway, I ended up having not a meltdown, but I had a dummy spit. I was, <laughs> I was walking along and it was so, we were on like this precipice 
And to me, it felt really dangerous because I'm afraid of heights, let's not forget, (laughs) which is interesting because I know it's the tallest mountain in the world, but you never really feel like you're at risk of anything until you get to this little precipice. And I'm on the precipice and I just kept falling over. For some reason, I just kept losing my footing and people were getting ahead of me and I kept losing my footing and people were behind me. So I was feeling pressured. I kept falling over, kept falling over, kept falling over. It was horrible. And then I just sat down and I ripped off my gloves and I ripped off my hat because I had a, like, you got two or three beanies on and your thermal beanies underneath. I just ripped everything off because I started to get hot. And I just started stripping off and I'm taking off my (laughs) my very wet, soft shell, not waterproof, um, not snowproof, (laughs) not rainproof jacket. I'm taking that off. I'm taking off my boots. I'm just, I'm taking off my clothes, right? And my Sherpa starts freaking out and he's like, get everything back on, get everything back on. I'm like, but I'm hot, I'm hot. I didn't realize I was having a a reaction to like my body just wasn't coping with with the altitude that we were at. Um, And I was saying that I was hot, but actually I was really cold. It's like I later found out it's like hypothermia. Maybe I had. (laughs) And he's like, no, 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 we've got to get everything back on, get everything back on. Um, But I'd thrown gloves off the side of this mountain because the precipice had a straight drop. And I was just in my mind, I could just see myself losing my footing and tumbling to my death. And so I just sat down right where I was. I wasn't going to budge. I wasn't going to move. And I was over it. I was done. I, I took, as I said, anything that I could get off me, I got off me and I threw it down the mountain. Uh, so then people had to give me like spare gloves and a spare this and a spare that. And I had to get up had no choice so they helped me get up they helped me get along this precipice and then I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed of myself and I'm sorry and all the things and everybody was very kind um, and compassionate but I think because they'd gone through their stuff as well they probably were super understanding I was very lucky and uh, you know it was just so hard and then we got up to the final resting place I was gonna say the final pit stop and again it was just horrible it was just horrible I the food was horrible it was all white it was all bland it was all tasteless everything stank like where we were sleeping there were rats we saw rats in our room I was so worried I couldn't sleep because I was worried about a rat anytime I heard something I thought it was a rat um the smell of the the toilets were down the end of the corridor and people were in and out of the toilets all night and every time they open and close that door to the toilets it's like fanning around the smell of the urinal blocks and I'll just like I can't handle this and I got this really bad migraine and it was yeah it was horrible and some people went up got up early in the next morning my friend was one of them Karen they went up and they climbed up the top of Annapurna uh, I didn't because I was just in such a bad way anyway uh, what else I think it was like the next day or something we walked and we made it to base camp and it was just like the best feeling ever. Oh, something else that I forgot to share with you too was um, after we started walking, I think it was day two. So we were about 20 or 25 K into the trek. Um, I started to get pain 
in my gum and the pain never went away and I told my uh, Sherpa about it and he said to me that, you know, there was something going on with my mouth and everything and he'd see if we could get me something at the next um, shelter where we were staying. Nobody had anything like the, the people who run it, they didn't, they don't sell medicine or anything like that. And, um, I just had to like suffer through it. And it turned out that I had a double abscess. So I spent the whole trick dealing with a double abscess. The side of my face was blown out like a golf ball. Um, (laughs) plus I got hypothermia, I think. Um, yeah, not not the funnest experience. But when I got to the top, um, it was amazing. It was like this huge sense of accomplishment. It was this huge sense of accomplishment. Oh, and something else that happened too was um, on the journey, we were staying at, I can't remember the name of the place. I think it was Tan Boucher or something like that it was one of the little areas we were staying in. We, we got there and Everybody was trying to dry themselves by a little, like a pot belly stove that was in the middle of the hall because uh, it's usually halls and they've usually got like plywood tables around the edge with like bench seating also made of plywood and stuff like that. But in the middle, you usually have a black pot belly stove and there's no wood. So they burn yak poo. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, right? I was thinking the same, but I see it differently now. I know now they were making the most of the resources that they had, which is amazing. But at the time I was like disgusted by it and I was thinking, oh my God. And the, the place smells like burning yak poo as well, mixed with toilet blocks. And uh, they use the, <laughs> what they do is they, most of the places they have a couple of yak they rely on the yak for everything from like the keeping themselves warm with the fur, getting the yak milk. They use the yak milk for so much stuff, yak meat, um, you know, reproduction, everything. And uh, they pick up the poo and they (laughs) – it's not funny. It's not funny. Sorry, I'm I'm, not – they pick up the poo and they flatten it out on top of these – they've got like – I don't know, maybe they're about a foot tall stone. They've just stacked up stones to make fences and they'll dry them out in the sun um, and they use that for for fuel. And anyway, <laughs> they use them for the cooking as well. Like to, They use them as the fuel to boil the water. They use them as the fuel to heat the stuff in the fry pan and, and everything. So, yeah. Anyway, it's really clever and I love that they're so resourceful, um, but at the same time, because it was new to me, it was strange. Um, anyway, where was I going with this? Something about the the yaks. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, so we got up to the top and it was great and we get our photo taken with the flag and we get a group shot done. It was all really lovely and that was like kind of, oh, okay, what's next? And do you know what? The, the the summit was not that far off, right? You could see it. I was like, hey, I was like to Karen, hey, do you reckon we should see if we can like upgrade our trip and summit? And <laughs> of course we couldn't do that. But just seeing that it was so close, um, 
it was exciting because it gave us an idea of what could be next, you know, what could be next for us. Like if we came back, maybe it's more serious now that we've got an idea of what to do and what not to do. And maybe we could actually, you know, work towards somebody in the future. So that was really, really lovely. And then when we finished the trek, the 12 days was up, we'd made it, we'd celebrated all of that. It took us two days, not even two days to come down. You are literally running down the mountain. You have to get off that mountain as fast as you can, um, which is hard because it's so slippery. Um, Some parts of the mountain, they've made steps. Some parts of the mountain, it's just rock. Others, it's clay, grass, gravel, um, but it's slippery and especially when you're running. So there was lots of falling over. Lots of that was the first time I ever popped my knee. Um, my knee hasn't been the same since, like from time to time, I'll still pop it. But coming back down the mountain was amazing because then we, we stopped at um, like one of the main little towns that did actually have some shops. It was like one of the towns at the beginning that did have a shop, it had a little bar. We went into the bar with some of the people uh, that we completed the trek with and we watched Everest and it was so fun because we could see all the places that we'd been and we could see all the people that we'd seen and um, it was just really lovely to go oh my gosh that was over there and we went there and oh we've got photos of that and it was just oh you know that really brought it home like what we had just accomplished being able to look back at it through somebody else's eyes so to speak really made us appreciate what we just achieved and, and what we just done. And oh, it was so good. And you know what? I did have a couple of drinks. And uh, because of the altitude, I think it must have really affected me because when we came out of the bar, oh, my gosh, I was just so happy and so giggly and so just like you know how you just get silly giggly silly giggly um yeah I was just like that I can't remember ever being like that before but yeah anywho and then uh the next day we got on the plane and we flew back to uh Kathmandu and yeah we handed in all our stuff and blah 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 and got little certificates to say that we'd done it which was really fun and handed back our um, sleeping bags and everything and then we went and ate more falafel in the street <laughs> so this was Everest it was like a really quick 14 days um literally we just flew there and flew back if I did it again I'd give myself more time either side so I could just enjoy uh, the the whole experience but I wanted to share this story with you oh that's what I was going to say um yeah when we're when we're at one of these places where we stopped off it was snowing so bad it was snowing so bad the winds were howling everything But one of the guys from another group came into the hall where we were all sort of trying to keep warm and he had a yellow sash around his neck. And I said to him, where did you get that from? Because I knew that it was Buddhist because I had become Buddhist and I'd taken refuge and I'd done all of the things and I recognized it straight away. And I was like, oh, my gosh, where did you get this from? And he's like, oh, there's a Buddhist temple and da, 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 da. So I got him to show me where it was. And I could barely see it because it was, well, you know, so windy. Um, it was just kicking up white everywhere. But um, 
uh, I, f- I saw it. And so I went there by myself, which is kind of scary-ish, but I felt I needed to do it. And I went there and a monk met me and the whole temple thing was made of the plywood, you know. And I go inside and he says I can come with him. And it was amazing because they they were doing like, to me it felt like construction, but no, this was just the temple. And he took me down all these sort of windy corridors and into a little room. And in the room was a llama. And the llama was there and he was in his robes had the red robes with the gold and all of this. There was incense burning. He had a scribe beside him. A Buddhist scribe was beside him and he was taking notes of something. And then the monk introduced me and then it was really lovely because although I didn't know the language that the monk was speaking, my lama, whose name is Lama Tender, He's in Frankston. So um, I was going to my Sanger, that's the name for like community, um, Buddhist community. My my Sanger was in Frankston and it teaches in Sanskrit, which is really cool because it means that wherever I travel all over the world, I can still pray with the monks because I know the language now, right? So um, he started praying and then I started joining in because I knew the prayer. The prayers are the same wherever you go. And because I'd been taught, yeah, as I said, in Sanskrit and he was doing it in Sanskrit, I was able to join in. And then he started smiling at me and he had a twinkle in his eye. And I felt like we made this connection. And then he knew that like I was serious and it was so beautiful. And so we prayed together for a little while, myself and this other llama and the, the two other, one was a boy and one was a man. And you know, they had the shaved heads and they were there with their hands folded and holding onto the incense and we're all praying. And it was just like this really, 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 really special moment. And tears started to come out of my eyes. And then he basically told me through one of the boys who was translating, um, that he is nothing special. He's just like everybody else. He doesn't need to be reified or anything like this. And that, you know, we are the same. And it really struck home to me about this whole idea of no separation. Like everybody's just the same. It's no one's better or higher up or more important or anything. And to hear this from someone I really respected and to see him living it really was just so powerful for me. And of course I got blessed and I got a sash and uh, yeah, it was really special. It was just like a special magical moment for me. And that did change my approach to private practice because in that moment, I really understood what no separation meant. And I really understood what it meant to live it in my business and to see no separation between myself and my clients, myself and private practice owners, myself and my counseling clients, myself. And, do you know what I mean? And to, and to start seeing what we had more in common than focusing on the differences. So it was like really cool. I loved it. So I guess I just wanted to share that with you and let you know like some of my reflections and maybe even after you've heard this story today, you'll have perhaps some different reflections. But I was thinking about how this trip for me became more than a trip to, to, you know, base camp on Everest. It became 
later in my life an analogy for my private practice journey and I I think for the journey of many people who consider or do start a private practice and I just want to share with you some of my reflections just quickly on that and I think one of the things is that I went on this trip totally unprepared and I see that in so many people starting private practice like you just assume you know it and it's not until you start doing that that you realize how unprepared you are so yeah I was totally unprepared and I just thought I'd wing it I see that with people who want to start private practice. I think they think, well, all I need really is my logo and a website and a Psychology Today profile, then I'll just post on my social a lot. They don't understand all the nuances that go into having a business. And yeah, there was that. The other thing that I realized was I went through a lot of really significant challenges on that trek that I didn't need to have gone through. I didn't need to put myself through them. Uh, They just weren't necessary. Like I didn't need to struggle with, you know, why didn't I take medicine with me? Why didn't I take a Panadol with me? Uh, Why didn't I think to take? Um, It's obvious now that I've done it, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time, but why didn't I take waterproof clothes? (laughs) Things like that you know so there were a lot of things that really made it so much harder for me that just weren't necessary had I done some research first or had I had a guide first to to tell me and prepare me and and show me what I needed to do the other thing was as you keep climbing higher and higher and higher you start to leave more and more and more stuff behind from your backpack because the weight of the backpack just becomes so much heavier. By the end of the trek, you've hardly got anything in your backpack. I think by the end of the trek, I had maybe a pair of knickers, maybe one t-shirt, and maybe a pair of socks. I think that was all that was in my backpack when I was right at the top of the mountain. So every step along the way, your backpack just feels so much heavier. And the pit stops where you stay at, they have baskets, like donation baskets, and you can leave your shoes, you can leave T-shirts, you can leave your books, you can leave anything that you've taken, you can leave it there for people who might need it. And it's great because, you know, there were times when even I needed stuff and I was able to get stuff out of those baskets. There were many times I left stuff in those baskets for other people. So it's a great system. But the thing is that on reflection, what I realized was the further along the journey, the less I realized I needed. And I think that that's such a great reflection for starting a business as well, for starting a private practice as well, because I think in the beginning you assume that you're going to need all the things. But when you get to the end and you've actually created this successful business, you realize you didn't need half the stuff you thought you did. And it was really through refining. Oh, sorry, I just hit my microphone. It was really through refining and bringing back the simplicity that you are able to experience and manifest the success. So, and that was reflected also with the food, you know, starting off 
you know, with these big meals with all the meat and the vegetables and stuff like that and then finishing off with just simple meals that still gave you what you needed to survive and flourish and reach your goals was also just another analogy or another metaphor for, uh, you know, how important it is to keep your private practice simple. Um, what else have I written down? Yeah, also unloading my backpack became an analogy for getting rid of things in the private practice that were holding me back. So getting rid of, for me, it was mindset stuff. It was beliefs, beliefs around imposter syndrome, beliefs around my own ability. You know, could I really do this? Could I make this happen? And so it's it's sort of represented in both the business and in the trek. Another thing that I realized was, you know, this experience of trudging and just trudging one foot in front of the other, looking down at the ground, watching every single step, paying attention to every single step, looking around me and just seeing everything is white and nothing's changing. I think that's a beautiful analogy for what it can feel like in private practice. Sometimes you do feel like you're trudging and that you look around and nothing's changing. You're working so hard and you're doing so much and this is taking up so much of your energy and your effort and it feels like nothing's shifting for you until you reach that point on the trek where you see the pit stop in the distance. That's your signal that you are making progress. It's the same in your practice. It can feel like nothing's shifting and that you're not making progress when in fact, every time you take that step, the reality is that you are, okay? Another thing that I learned was the importance of trusting and surrendering and giving up my control, how important that was. If I... You know, with Deepak and Kuma, I had to fully trust in them. Now, they were strangers to me. I didn't know them from Adam. They were strangers to me. But I trusted them with my life. I trusted them with my life. And that meant following their directions. You know, sometimes questioning, sometimes discussing, but always following. Always following. Because they had done this trek before. They knew what worked. They knew what didn't. They knew what to take. They knew what to leave behind. They knew uh, how to do it the simplest way, the easiest way, the most straightforward way, the way without the the medicines and all of this sort of stuff. And I think it's the same with private practice. When you find a mentor or a coach that you want to work with, It requires the trust. You have to let go of control to some extent and put your faith in their ability to guide you up the mountain, you know, in in the safest way, in the quickest way, and in the way that's going to be the healthiest for you and for your business. You know, trying to wing it and do it all alone, there's no way we would have been able to, to get to the top. It would have taken a lot longer. There would have been more challenges, more mistakes. Who knows? Maybe we might not have even made it. But by, you know, allowing ourselves to have confidence, trust, faith and surrender in a guide, in a leader, made success for our trek possible. And I believe that that's true for private practice as well. The other thing that I realized was the value of using all the resources you already have. I think when I first started private practice, 
I was underutilizing a lot of the things that I already had. Like I was underutilizing uh, my email. I was underutilizing my social media. I was underutilizing my brain, all these sorts of things. And seeing these women um, use every single thing from the farm right down to the yak pats, you know, for fuel and everything really, I think is a beautiful reflection of where we can be in private practice and, you know, what are you not utilizing to its fullest? Is it your online diary? Like are you using that for everything that it offers? Are you using all the features? Are you using all the benefits? They're there for a reason. Something else that I took away from the trip was that, yeah, um, keeping it simple equals, you know, success. And this was just really, I'm just finishing up now. This was just really what I wanted to share with you that, you know, there's always going to be people ahead of you on your trek up the mountain. And there's always going to be people coming up behind you on the trek up the mountain. There's always going to be people who are running into emergencies and need to get chop it off. Okay. But you get to choose how you're going to make this journey easiest, safest and successful for you. Okay. And if you want it, there are Sherpas available. (laughs) And, you know, I'm one of them. So if anything that I have shared with you today resonates, I'd love for you to let me know. But I just thought it'd be interesting to share with you uh, a, a travel experience that I had that became, on reflection, a life lesson and a business lesson in the hopes that you don't have to go and trek Everest (laughs) to get the lessons and to get the learnings and to get the takeaways. I just wanted to share them with you today. I thought it was just a beautiful story. But anyway, I hope that you have a really, 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 really beautiful day. Have a lovely Wednesday and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I hope that you loved this episode as much as I loved putting it together for you. To get more resources to help you in your private practice, head over to Instagram. My handle is at the private practice coach. And also, if you want more inquiries and referrals for your business, let me know. I have a program called Clients on Demand that opens every quarter, and I can absolutely get you some information for that as well. You are doing an amazing job. Thank you for sharing your gifts with the world. Bye.